Hello, hello. There he is. There we go. All right, we are in action. Uh, How are we let doing? Me tweet this. Let me tweet this out. What's up, man? I'm doing good. Having a good day. Good start to the week. What about you? Yeah, I was just telling Romine, who's up. Have you ever met Romine, actually, who's up on I have stage with us here? All right, well, Romine is a uh, another Twitter legend, um, also a real-life legend, investor, um, former McKinsey bro, um, and uh, now recovering McKinsey bro, I suppose, who's an entrepreneur like like yourself. Um, but one of, one of my good friends and super, super thoughtful, he's, he's really close with Sean Puri as well, Nick. So another one of our group chat, uh, group chat people. Nice to meet you, Ramin. Nice to meet you too, Nick. I think we're not too far from each other. You're in Georgia as well, right? Yeah. I'm in Athens. We got to, uh, we got to get together at some point. Yeah. Playing golf. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in, um, Johns Creek Alpha Road area. Cool. Yeah. There you go. I just, um, I just tweeted this out guys. So if you want to, uh, you can just retweet whatever i just put out if it's easy and gather some people who i'm sure will be joining and then the recording and transcript will be up later for anyone that can't join um for everyone that's listening in you can um request to uh call in and we'll bring people up um throughout for for part of the discussion but um maybe we can just kick off with the context nick for um for what we're talking about here and and why so this weekend um what was it on Saturday? I think um, Nick woke up and uh, chose violence, I suppose. Um, and uh, the, the the specific tweet, which actually Nick is not all that uh, not all that out of the ordinary for you. I feel like you've developed a brand and reputation for um, hard truths, um, and, and, you know, holding your stance on things. So I, and I, I respect it. Um, and you tweeted out technology won't change your life very much at all over the next 10 years. And here's why. And you had a thread of, um, sort of a bunch of different things, which we can talk through. Um, and I initially, uh, replied and just said it was a hot take. Um, I then had like, 10 or 15 people send me texts being like, dude, that was a super cold take actually. Uh, and so then I went back and read it more carefully and I felt like we just have uh, diametrically opposed positions on a bunch of these topics and that there were a bunch of people that um, were clearly interested in what you put out because as of right now, it has well over a thousand retweets and 5,000 likes, you know, and it picked up a bunch of traction in a bunch of different circles of people. So I thought it made sense to, uh, to record a, um, a little bit of like a debate slash discussion around it and, um, you know, put it out there and see, see what other people think. So, um, we're going to be bringing callers up throughout, but maybe we can just kick off, um, with you, Nick, and a little bit of what you were getting at here and, and what your kind of general positions are on this. Yeah. The fun thing about Twitter is I can think about something that I'm not sure of, and I can think of some points on both sides. And I can say, all right, what's the best way to get smarter about this? And it's clear to me always that you take a hard side and one that maybe is a loosely held opinion and you tweet it in a very aggressive uh, matter of fact way. And there's no better way to get a lot of really smart people to tell you that you're an idiot. And if you have an open mind, you can learn a lot. So this is called Cunningham's tool. This is called Cunningham's law. Have you heard of that, Nick? Oh, this is, um, I feel like I first saw this, Ramin might be able to correct me on this. I feel like I first saw this from Mark Andreessen, 
Um, But it's called Cunningham's Law, and it's basically that the best way to get the right answer on the Internet is not to ask a question, but it's to post the wrong answer. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's like this whole idea of like, you know, people just come and like crash your party and attack you and tell you how much of an idiot you are, no matter what you say. So like if you post something that you think, you know, you're thinking through in real time you're likely to get a bunch of people jumping down your throat and providing what they believe is the correct response, whether or not it's correct. But um, yeah, it's called Cunningham's law. So I think it's, it's a, uh, it's an astute observation that you make there. It's an interesting way to do it also, just because I think you get a bunch of people that have like severe confirmation bias. And so you'll have people that will really come out of the woodwork because this either Nick reaffirms their worldview or totally shatters it. But I think if you actually look for the nuance and probably the 5% of people that respond, you can actually get some pretty in- interesting perspectives on both sides. Yeah, if you're, if you're not afraid to look like an idiot, which I'm clearly not afraid to look like an idiot on the Internet, um, you know, nuance, nuance doesn't spark a, a discussion. And, OK, yeah, a lot of these takes that I had are incorrect. And for the for the fun of this discussion, I'll. I'll argue them and I'll take a hard side. We both know, we all know that my whole life is different because of technology. And I run a remote company of 40 people. I'm probably the only real estate private equity guy in America who owns properties in, you know, soon to be 12 states with people all over the world working with me. And um, our tech stack is evolving and probably more advanced and we're better operators because of technology than anybody in the country. But that, that aside, I do think people get in their tech bubble and I like angering tech Twitter. So it was fun. <laughs> well, look, I, so, so I want to walk through your points because I, and I do want you to argue them um, both from like the edge case, which is what you presented on Twitter, but then also, mm-hmm. you know, we can discuss some of the nuance around them because I do think even rereading it now, as I went through it before this, there is definitely, you know, seeds of truth within each one that I think clearly sparked, you know, a lot of um, discussion on both sides of this. And so mm-hmm. I think it's actually a really valid conversation to have and one that um, people will find interesting. So um, the first thing that you talk about in the thread is crypto. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just hit on that one as a starting point? Because I, I mean, I like, first off, great clickbait by you, because when you start with yeah, crypto, you automatically get people one. yelling at you. <laughs> Right. I had to do that one to piss off the max amount of people. Um, but look, I mean, I, I, there are many people who are way smarter than me that think this is the future. And honestly, I own crypto and I will continue to own and invest in crypto. The technology is really exciting. We shipped tomato token. I've done an NFT project. Um, it's fun, fascinating stuff. I just, when I ask those really smart people to explain to me in a very simple way, exactly what problem it will solve. I have a hard time wrapping my head around the answer. Is it because I'm kind of a dumbass? Yes, I'm definitely kind of a dumbass. But the most the best ideas can be explained very simply. You don't have to agree with them or disagree with them. I can't even form an opinion on crypto because none of it makes any fucking sense to me. Right. That's the problem. Okay, so flashback to what it, what was it, Nick? Mid twenty twenty. Um you and I first meet in a group chat as, as it were with, you know, the, the way that our kind of modern relationships end up building, we're in a group chat and the group chat is at the time, I think some combination of like you, me, Sean Puri, uh, Julian Shapiro, Greg Eisenberg, uh, Nikita I think, and Austin. I, I don't think Nikita was in it yet, but Austin, he was, um, Okay. And so everyone starts talking about crypto, you know, it's a bunch of kind of like tech nerds for lack of a better way to put it. 
and everyone's talking about crypto and you're sort of the lone dissenting voice. Um, you then caved and I think you like you bought a bunch of Bitcoin and Ethereum at the time. And I, I still laugh about it because I remember getting yeah. a text from you <laughs> to the group that literally said, like, guys, can't thank you enough. Uh, you've opened my eyes to this whole new world. This is amazing. You know, this like really flowery text. And I think like two days later, crypto kind of crashed and we like, <laughs> like, like, you know, it was down like 20 or 30 percent. And I remember laughing, being like, Nick is now like leaving the group chat, disowning <laughs> us, saying he's never heard of any of us um, because, you know, went, went, went from like thanking us for opening his eyes to this world to like hating all of us because he just lost 20, 30 percent of the value. But <laughs> I feel like that was your first entree into this. Um, and, you know, now, obviously, since 2020, at the time, I feel like crypto, you know, in the more mainstream context was really just like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Now we have mm -hmm. this whole concept of Web3 and all of the different protocols mm -hmm. being built and all of the different stuff that's out there. You built Bromados on Solana, if I yep. recall correctly. Yep. So yep. there's a whole lot more happening. Um, I guess my perspective on this one was it's I, I think it's a little um, first off, I'm not an expert, but I think it's a little early to say. I think it depends who you ask whether there's a real problem being solved. If you go and ask an immigrant who has been sending money home and paying exorbitant FX exchange rates and absurd fees to a middleman that happens to sit in between um, them and their family in insert whatever country, um, I would say crypto solves a very real problem. If I can, you know, if, if money is all digital mm -hmm. now, which most of it is, and I can, mm -hmm. you know, send money digitally with zero middleman, you know, harvesting and collecting that rental on the way, that feels like a real problem to me. And there's billions, maybe trillions of dollars that flow through money remittance annually. And so there's, you know, a big problem. I, Romine, you, this is something you think about a lot. I'm curious for your perspective on it. Yeah, I think that's totally right. I mean, I, so I think there's two things, right? I think one is, you know, when you make a statement like crypto doesn't solve a real use case, I'd kind of segment, I'd separate the technology from the use case, right? So I think, Saho, you mentioned this on Twitter, and I, I completely agree with you. Crypto, just like mobile and kind of the internet, et cetera, it's a platform shift, right? So saying that, you know, the thing doesn't solve a real use case would be like saying, you know, mobile didn't solve every use case, you know, that we we use mobile for today. Ergo, mobile isn't useful, right? So I think one element of this is you have to separate the actual underlying technology from the existing use cases that come today with the promise of the use cases that come in the future. I think part of the problem with crypto generally is it's one of the first use cases or kind of one of the first platform shifts where everything can get financialized from day one. And so you have tons of grifters that have come out of the woodworks and everybody kind of extolling every value under the sun of crypto because you can make a very, very quick buck in a very disingenuous way. So that, that's where I think, Nick, actually you're, you're highlighting of, well, you know, what is the real use case or you know, hey, all these really smart people believe in it, you know, explain it to me like I'm five or explain it to me in simple form is actually really important critique and criticism, right? Because I think there's tons of projects and we've seen this, right? There's tons of tokens, you know, that are, you know, that are not backing real projects at all. Founders have walked away with life-changing sums of money um, and users have been left holding the bag, right? But I do think the real use case and, and the biggest use cases I think about or I kind of see in live form today are, you know, Sahil, exactly what you mentioned on the payment side. So I'd made an investment in a company um, and, and bought their tokens. It's a token called Terra or Luna. And the interesting thing about the Terra ecosystem, just in general, 
is they're probably one of the few crypto projects, at least I've seen, that actually has like very real utility in the wild itself. So there's an application called Chai Labs, and it's one of the most prominent apps in the in the Terra ecosystem. Chai does something really cool. It basically accepts payments in local currency. It translates it to UST in the background. That's that's the stable coin. Uh, and then it gives the vendor back money in their local currency. So it does something really interesting in the background, which is you can transact from anywhere in the world in your native currency. And then the background algorithmically, it's changing into a common form and then remitting back out to the vendor in their local currency, right? So I think use cases like that are just incredible, right? Um, you're eliminating the gatekeeper in between. The transaction is way more efficient. And so the BIPs aren't going to a middleman, right? Consumers on both end, the merchant's keeping more money, the consumer can spend more money. And I think Chai Labs in its short tenure is already the third largest uh, payments rail and payments gateway in Korea, right? Hmm. So I think I think there's a lot of promise and a lot of really interesting things. I think the key is just because everything has been financialized from day one, there's a ton of grift and nonsense out there as well. Yeah, and it's, it's non-regulated, right? So, yep. so there's not great mechanisms in place yet to stop that from happening. Um, and because of the, like, you know, rampant, the, the money that some people made that were in the early days, there is a ton of speculation. I mean, I got, I think, Nick, I think I mentioned this to you, like, I got pitched on a new um, token investment. And in the, like, pitch that a reputable investor sent me, one of the things said, if this, beca- it was a startup, you know, brand new, and it was a pre-sale. And it was like, if this becomes a top 10 um, by market or top 20 by market cap token, it would represent an 100x plus, you know, return on your investment today. And my initial reaction was legitimate FOMO. I was like, oh, holy shit, maybe I should make this. And then I realized, like, if you put that into a into the context of a normal company, that would be such a ludicrous thing to say. Like the analog is saying for a start, a tech startup, if this becomes a top 20 market cap on the NASDAQ, you're going to make a great return on your investment. And you would never say that for a tech startup. It's like a pretty ridiculous thing to say. Like if this becomes one of the biggest companies in the world, yeah, it's going to be a great return. But for some reason within the crypto world, within the Web3 world, that like terminology doesn't mean much. Um, and so you say it and people kind of run wild in their mind with with speculation. So I do think, you know, I think you're hitting on a fair point. Like the, the idea of the Feynman technique, like, you know, if, if you can't explain it to a five-year-old, you don't really understand it. I do think that is something that has been missing um, within the within the crypto and Web3 world and continues to be, you know, an open area for opportunity for any builders or, or creators out there to continue to simplify and kind of provide those balanced explanations of these topics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I, I, the, the decentralized, we can, one last point, the, the decentralized, yeah. I just like, who is incentivized to do the work, right? If it's, If you don't have a speculative token that you can hope transacts at a very high amount in the future and essentially is a volatile currency how do the founding teams get rewarded because everything they do is open source so it will be stolen it will the tech the tech is going to be amazing like it will allow people to do what we americans do and and when i when i make this the theme of this entire tweet storm is it will not change your life very much at all over the next 10 years we as an american in, in america I already send money to Sahil Bloom in two seconds via Venmo, U.S. dollars. All right. I already do these things. Like, will will it allow those things to happen more efficiently? Absolutely. But will the end goal, the end problem be very similar? Yes. Whereas 10 years ago, technology 
over the last 10 years really allowed for that to happen. It allowed for information and money to transfer. So um, it's, it, I don't know. I, very interesting how it'll play out. It's all very fascinating stuff. Brilliant people are working on it. Um, I'm not going to not invest in this because too many smart people, way smarter than me. No right. way. But it's, it's just really tough for me to, to see how it all plays out. Nick, have you ever, have you ever made like a, you know, you, you deal in large volumes. Have you ever made like a six figure transfer or like a wire request on a Friday afternoon? Yes. It's, it's tough. It's tough. It's the most <laughs> painful thing in the world. Right. I, I mean, I, I was making a similar kind of sized wire. I had to have three different sources call me and then the wire got cleared. It took until Tuesday morning. And it was just totally crazy to me because the analogy in my head was, I can't imagine a world where I have like three gatekeepers to send an email and I can't send an email on a Friday at 3 p.m. And it reaches my customer, you know, at 8 a.m. on Tuesday. Right. And I, I will say the first time I moved crypto in that volume at, uh, at that scale and speed was it, it was like one of those like click. It was like one of those iPhone AirPod type moments. Right. Where you can't actually really articulate it, but you just have to experience it. Anyways, I think those are the those are the kinds of things that like. Yeah, it doesn't sound super sexy, but the idea yeah. of being able to transact half a week earlier, et cetera, less bips, et cetera, I think actually has significant velocity in, in the economy. Yeah. And having that bank to refund my money if something goes wrong or those gatekeep, you know, yes, it's a pain in the ass, but having those people backing me up, if, if my million dollars might go to the wrong place, I sent about a hundred grand of crypto at one time. Very, very, very anxiety filled. Very yeah, good. it is. I agree. And with it's that. a different. It's a different behavior, right? So it's not to say that you have to use. It's not to say that you have to send every single large sum of money through crypto, right, or through that kind of rail or so. I, I mean more to say that if you had the ability or yeah. you had the promise of being able to transact faster, right, that is a significant improvement. That actually, I don't think will be visible to the normal eye of the American consumer, but actually will move money through the system yeah. significantly faster. It also it, it also goes back to Nick's kind of American centric view on this, you know, on the whole thread, because I think you're right, Nick, that like, if you can rely on Bank of America, um, or whatever, J, JP Morgan Chase, whatever, like this big bank institution, plus the US government, you know, FDIC insurance, like all of these, you know, reserve currency institutions that are within America that, you know, make it so that the idea of trustless is like, you know, probably slightly less impactful in a place where you can have like really strong grounded trust um, in those institutions and in their legacy versus if I'm in, you know, parts of rural India or parts of rural Africa or different parts of the world where like maybe the institutions you can't trust quite as much um, or in the same manner these type of solutions might actually carry more weight. I think that's why a lot of people are really bullish on the future of crypto in Africa is because, you know, there's a chance that they completely, you know, leapfrog over the like web two fintech applications and jump to web three solutions because, you know, it was just never built up in a, in a web two world. Yep. I'm, I'm a, you know, I've read the price of tomorrow. I don't, I don't buy the deflationary environment. So crypto as a currency that's limited all sounds really great. But if the Fed couldn't control the monetary supply in March 2020, and we all had to sit in our homes for six months, many, many people would have starved to death. Like that mm -hmm. was an advantage. That was an advantage that the Fed was able to pump money into the system and save us. And it's an it's a advantage that they can raise and lower the interest rates. It's an advantage that banks are regulated and can track where cash goes so that criminal activity and those things are not as rampant. Um, I, I don't want to sound, you know, that's about as bullish as, as bearish as I get. I think the technology is incredible and it will absolutely impact 
what we already do and make it better, but it will not change what we do. I don't think like technology has over the past 10 years. Interesting. All right. So let's jump to your next point, which is like kind of a broader one that I think runs through most of the remainder of the thread beyond crypto, which is like, broadly speaking, this whole idea of, um, you know, physical world shortages Mm -hmm. and technology not fixing physical world shortages in the way that we need it to. Um, You know, and you point to a handful of examples, but you talk a lot about skilled labor, um, which is, I think, I mean, it's, it's a huge impressing issue. So would love, would love you to kick off there and and maybe we can chat about that. Yeah. I stand, uh, you go on Twitter and Elon Musk and his fanboys think that 99% of people will be driving self-driving cars in 18 months and they'll all be electric and it'll all be amazing. In reality, I say, hey, Alexa, play my favorite song. And about 20% of the time she gets it wrong or can't understand me or something happens. And then I go outside and look at the potholes in the roads and the fact that my neighbor's house needs painted and the gutters need fixed and the roof is probably worn out as well. And I just think it's kind of short-sighted to think that, okay, technology trying to disrupt our, our world. I bought a, I bought a Roomba, one of the really nice ones that's supposed to work on carpet. <laughs> it, it Guess what? It doesn't work on carpet. And I still have to pay four people to come to my house every other Monday to actually clean my house. And that's just a floor. We're not talking about things that actually go wrong where a human is 50 million times more competent than a machine when it comes to, you know, painting a wall or going upstairs or doing some of these things in our physical world. So, um, you know, I, I think tech will change a lot of things, but man, oh man, it's very, very far from replacing even even what a what a third grader can do to interact with humans and solve problems and and the dexterity needed to do those things in our physical world. Yeah, so I I actually don't have like a strong pushback to that final point. Like I I actually think most technologists would even admit that um, you know automation and robotics is far enough off from being able to replace those kind of activities that, you know, it's not like a next five or 10 year thing. I think, I think people have now come to terms with the fact that um, it's going to take longer than anyone expected to like truly automate and replace, especially those skilled jobs, but even, you know, lower skill jobs. Uh, I think people have found that it's much more challenging to, to replace them in that manner. I think that like fundamentally though, what you're getting at is, um, sort of like resource and capital allocation question where you're yep. like, you know, what, why are people deploying all this intelligence resources, et cetera, into like self-driving cars when, you know, we have more pressing issues, you know, that are holding back society from progressing. And I thought that was like, you know, fundamentally an interesting point to, to kind of ground ourselves in my pushback to it is that I actually think there is a lot of capital being invested in, these specific issues. Like, you know, there's a company called WorkRise, you know, f- formerly called RigUp. Um, Romine, you may, you may know it. It was yeah. like, it's yeah. basically workforce management for skilled labor. And it's, it's a technology solution that is trying to deploy skilled labor more effectively. Because you have both the problem of not enough skilled laborers, but then you also have the problem of they're not in the right places and they're not being matched effectively to kind of drive, um, you know, optimal like utilization within the roles that are open. And so, tools like that within the technology landscape actually let us deploy those, you know, skilled resources more effectively and efficiently within a society. And then, you know, in terms of 
um, actually having more skilled laborers, there are definitely technology solutions that are being built to hopefully lead to more, um, you know, kind of more skilled and trade labor um, being <clears throat> being developed and upskilled. You know, so like I saw something recently, I think it was called Trade Up, um, that's doing like pretty innovative funding mechanism, um, partnering with uh, trade programs to kind of fund and and um, and uh, promote more skilled labor coming through these trade programs and like basically like isls um, not isas but isls that lead to kind of more more skilled labor over time so i I, like my 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 broader point when i was replying to you on this one was just i think there are technology solutions that are being developed and there's a lot of capital flowing into them because people see this as a big problem i just think these aren't the solutions that get the like sexy airtime um, or like the top news on TechCrunch that you're reading about or that Elon Musk is tweeting about. And so as a result, there's like a, um, you know, kind of a cognitive bias where you don't realize that there is capital being deployed into them. Well, I think we have to, we have to zoom out to the overall overarching point of my thread. 10 years ago, what was the bottleneck in our society? 10 years ago, the bottleneck in our society was that we could not effectively and efficiently communicate with each other. There was no way to fill out a quote request form on a contractor's website. There was no way to um, order food and have it delivered. There was no way to push a button on your smartphone and get a car. So that was the bottleneck. And those and tech revolutionized and changed everything. It was incredible. But now, what is the bottleneck now? What's the bottleneck right now? And yes, technology will continue to impact the way trades are done, the way trades are learned, the way trades are distributed. But will that fundamentally change our life that much over the next 10 years? The answer to me is no. It has changed our life a lot. Contractors now are running around with iPads. Contractors two years ago, 10 years ago, were running around with clipboards. That's a fundamental, significant change in the way we all live and do business. Over the next 10 years, will these companies that are, you know, prop tech or, you know, revolutionize the trades or the Uber of this, Uber of that fundamentally change the way the average American interacts with companies? No. And, and the leverage, in my opinion, will shift. The leverage will pick now that now that the main bottleneck is gone and technology is where we need it to communicate really, really, really well. The, the leverage is going to shift from the people behind the computers to the people out in the real world because there are not physically enough people to do the work that's required in our physical world. I'm talking about, hey, brilliant person, shut your laptop, walk out of your front door and look at all the problems with the buildings. Look at all the problems with the landscape. Look at all the problems with the roads. Look at all the problems with the power lines and the infrastructure. Those are the problems that if you know how to solve those problems, you're going to have the leverage. I was listening to a podcast today with Mike Rowe. I'll send it to you and you can put it in the show notes if you want. You know Mike Rowe, he's the dirty jobs guy, right? Yep. He- he had a welder. He had a he had a welder come on who lives in San Francisco and works for a company called Owl Vans, O W L Owl Vans, and they weld attachments for sprinter vans and and travel camper vans. They create them. He has six welders full time. He makes over a million dollars a year. All of his welders make well over a hundred thousand dollars a year. And guess where he is losing his talent to? You, it's it's Tesla. <laughs> The job, the job at Tesla that does not require a college degree, the job at Tesla that it is to get in, and the job at Tesla that's going to pay you $150,000 a year is a welding job, Sahil. 
I just think you're conflating. I, yeah, I think yeah, you're sorry, arguing. Go ahead, Romain. No, I was just going to say, I think you're arguing a couple different points, right, Nick? So it's hard to actually, like, it's hard to centralize in or respond, right? So, like, let's maybe take it back to first principles. When, when I read your thread, you know, I actually think a lot of what you said was correct. But there were three things that I kind of pulled from your thread, right? So one thing I pulled from your thread is you're saying, look, there's very real downsides of technology. I think that's right. I think the second thing I heard from your thread or read was there are very real problems that we're not focusing enough attention on. I think that's right. And then I think the third was every technology that's out there doesn't have the promise, you know, that it may seem like we attach to it. I think each of those three as individual statements are correct. I think the problem is when you try to combine the three of those as proof for why tech won't change our lives, right? So for example, just because something has downside, right? Or their material, or there are other material problems out there, or something might not live up to its potential. I don't think any of those rise to the claim that that thing won't change your life. So, like the counter to those three is there's really real downsides of technology, yes, but there's very real upsides of technology. So let's take your let's take kind of the the point around physical world infrastructure and business. So I run a traditional workforce management company, right? Mm-hmm. We staff for large B two B companies, every kind of skill set you can imagine under the sun. And I'll tell you, one of the skill sets that we don't actually staff is what we call in our world, light industrial or heavy industrial. And those are your plumbers, your forklift folks, your mechanics, et cetera. And the reason why is because in a services laden model, without tech enablement, without tech efficiency, it's actually incredibly hard to make the business case work. So that's where Silo, the company you mentioned, WorkRise or, or formerly RigUp, is actually doing a phenomenal job which is they're not saying, hey, we're going to replace the plumber with an electric, you know, or a robot, right? It's not kind of like a one-to-one replacement. But what they are doing is they're saying, okay, one is we can use technology to, you know, to educate and train these workers at scale, right? Two is we can connect those workers to an opportunity. Three is we might actually, and, and you know, rig up and WorkRise isn't doing this, but there's other companies out there that might say, hey, we can actually scientifically create better materials so that road quality improves, et cetera, it's safer. And then there's other companies out there that say, hey, we can actually have ancillary technology like drones, you know, prefab, et cetera. So buildings can come up faster. They can be structurally safer. Maybe we can replace, you know, work that humans don't need to do. Why does a human need to go to the 50th floor of a building and do something incredibly risky when we can send a drone up there? So I, I think it's like fundamentally, it's just difficult to say that because the Roomba isn't, you know, a self-driving <laughs> vacuum, right, that works absolutely perfectly, or there's deficiencies with that technology, that there aren't ways for technology to integrate into kind of that stack and improve every element, you know, along the stack, right? I, I think the maybe the, the, the one piece, Nick, where you were saying, hey, you know, we're, we're good on communication, you know, we're kind of there already, what's really going to change in the future? I mean, the biggest thing that comes to my mind is healthcare, Right. I mean, look at what yep. look at what Moderna did with the vaccine, right? Which is like, I mean, that's a very real, tangible situation. It's not academic. It's not what's going to happen in the future, et cetera. I mean, the vaccine was like the precipice of strong yep. technological progress, right? Um, you, I think you you had something in your thread which was good, which was like, hey, look, like there's a bunch of kids sitting behind computers, like get out there. They don't need as much sugar. Totally agree, right? But think about all the amazing healthcare applications of like how we even understand what's in our bodies, right? So I think it's, I, I think the point is, I think your thread elicited a reaction, which I think was the goal, which is right. 
I just think that there, I, I think we are conflating a couple points here. Yeah, I think one, one area that I can see is these tradespeople, they're not needing to be as skilled if they have a headset on and a specialist coaching them through a repair, right? They can put a headset on, go to somebody's house and get in, somebody in their ear, somebody watching what they're watching, telling them exactly what and how to solve a problem, right? Yep. In that case, we can, we can have somebody in the Philippines who can help our unskilled tech come in and do work. We can leverage some of these things around the world and the world will flatten even more. But um, it's just so healthcare is healthcare is a phenomenal example that um, will will te- technology will absolutely revolutionize healthcare over the next ten years. It's just broadly so difficult to think kind of forward on this type of thing versus backward. Like it, it's very easy to say, oh, technology has changed a lot fundamentally for us over the last ten years, but the next ten years it won't. You know, it's like the Thomas Edison, or I forget who it was. Was it Thomas Edison that said, like, everything that, ha- you know, will be invented has already been invented mm-hmm. um, at some point? You know, s- someone said that, like, after the light bulb was invented. And it's obviously fucking ridiculous in hindsight to to say it. But we've, you know, like, he- humans are just exceedingly bad at understanding and predicting exponential growth um, or kind of large compounding. Like, it just doesn't happen. It's like um, actually in the price of tomorrow um nick you'll recall it from there like when he he provides the example of like you take a piece of paper and you fold it in half and then you do that 50 times and you ask someone how thick is that piece of paper and the answer is that it like stretches to the moon and you would never predict like people normally say like oh a few feet or something like that and it's astronomical uh, because our minds are really bad at extrapolating out you know those kind of growth curves and so i like i always caution myself against that when i think about technology or when i think about the acceleration of these type of events or movements is just because i know that my mind is naturally going to be really bad at it and i always ground myself in um if you if you look like a hundred years in the past I mean, we could even shorten it but like a hundred years in the past um I think the like average lower middle class person today is much better off overall than the average, you know, 1% like top uh, uh, upper class person from a hundred years ago. And I don't mean that like, you know, in any abstract sense, I literally mean like the life average lower middle class or right. middle class person today has much longer life expectancy. Their kids are more likely to survive to reproductive age. They're able to travel, you know, hopefully do like one vacation per year. They can go visit different places in the world without having to take, you know, a rail car or something crazy. Um, you know, they have better access to medical care, um, mental health care. Like there's just a variety of reasons. And the vast majority of all of those improvements have been driven by technology. And so I, maybe it's more challenging to say on a 10 year time horizon because there's impacts like, you know, in 2008, 2009, a lot of people were worse off because of the recession and things that happened. But in general, things tend to get better. Like if you read the book Factfulness, which I highly recommend if people haven't read it, um, there's a lot of case for optimism and technology is driving a lot of that. Are there massive problems, which I think you've correctly pointed out in a bunch of these areas and problems that need to be fixed? Um, absolutely. And will leverage go towards skilled workers in the coming years? I, I actually think that's correct. I think there's a great advantage for people, you know, who are, who are skilled laborers, laborers in the coming years. Um, but I think to say that technology just blanket is unlikely to change our lives over the next 10 years is just like a very, very hard call to make. One, one of the patterns of technology also is, and Nick, you said this in your thread, which I think is right. As you said, I think you said something to the effect of like, 
you know, more folks should solve today's problem with today's technology. I think what's really interesting as a pattern in technology generally is when you solve today's problems with today's technology, you end up creating new opportunities for things that new technology actually can solve. So I'll give a, I'll, I'll give a very tangible example of this. I invested in a company, so we're all familiar with APIs, right? And how now all sorts of apps, et cetera, can be built on top of APIs. Mm -hmm. So just for everybody listening, right? Not to go into kind of what an API is, but if you think of, you know, Uber, let's take Uber as an app, right? Uber is built on top of Google Maps' API, Twilio's API, Stripe's API. So nobody at Uber is building payments, texting, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. geolocation, et cetera, right? Uh, And that's a huge that's a huge marker of progress, right? Because now basically when you start a company, you don't have to restart, you know, building all these things that are already out there. So I invested in a company recently about a year and a half ago that created an identity API using today's API technology, but they just applied it to a specific use case. And they're doing, I mean, they're doing amazingly well. And in unbanked emerging economies, basically what they've done is they've given a people, they've given people a way to validate their identity and participate in the global economy where they wouldn't have been able to before because there was no way to validate who those people were or were to trust them, right? So that's massive. Now you bring this huge segment of the world online and they can actually transact and also for all sorts of different ways. All of those people now are participants in the online economy or the online world, right? And so what those people are now going to do, and Sahil, I know you see this in India. I've seen this in India over the last five years, especially investing there a ton. It is absolutely astounding what happens when you bring that mass of people that were not part of a system into a system. I mean, the amount of innovation and the amount of new technology that comes about because of that, and then all of the ancillary use cases that come down the line that we're just really bad at predicting, right, but end up actually coming down the line is is pretty incredible, right? So I think you see these kinds of When you actually solve today's problem with today's technology, a lot of what ends up happening is you actually bring more participants into the ecosystem. And then those new participants are actually able to use newer forms of technology, right, to apply to different use cases. And and that that just kind of keeps compounding over and over. That's really well said. Yeah, I I mean, I, I agree a lot with you guys. Again, I'm playing devil's advocate for the point of a of an energized discussion here, which I think we're doing a really good job teasing out the points but i mean our world our world has changed drastically over the last 10 how much different can a house get how much different can a phone get how much closer can the data get to us how much closer do we want it to get to us don't you know what i mean well that's Um, a great question right that that's like there's a that last question which you hit on in your thread is like social connectivity social media all of these technologies that we've had people are, you know, experiencing more challenges from a lot of it. It's like, I've talked about this before, like we have more connectedness than ever before, but we feel less connected to those people around us. Mm -hmm. Um, Like there's more connectivity, but less connectedness. Um, And that's a little bit of a scary thing, right? Is like, you know, are we losing, um, you know, losing touch with like actual human interaction and our ability to interact on a, you know, on a micro level because we're so connected broadly on a macro level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah I, think that, I mean, I think that's totally right. Somebody said this on another podcast I was listening to, was, and they put it humorously. They were like, the downside of connecting everybody in the world is like, there's a lot of crazy people out there. And like, maybe it would have been better if, you know, some of those people weren't connected, right? And what are the ramifications that, that come from that, right? And it's very real, right? I think we're, 
we're going through this paradigm shift where it's impossible to actually know how these things play out. There's very, very real downsides to it. I, I actually think the biggest stunter of like technological progress over the next decade is going to be, Nick, something you hit on, which is this idea of like, how much more do we necessarily want, right? And I think our generation, you know, we're all about the same age. Our generation is really interesting because, you know, a lot of people kind of did fork over and say, you know, we don't really care about privacy and we want utility, right? And we'll give up privacy at kind of every instance to have mass utility. And I think we're now just starting to kind of see what the implications of giving that mass privacy up actually yeah. transcends into, right? And yeah. I think we're starting third... to understand the trade, yeah. the trade-offs we made much more clearly, right? Like the, 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 um, the results of those trades are becoming much more like visceral and real to people. Yep. That's exactly right. And so I think that, that causes in a certain generation that causes an ability to slow down and say, well, wait a minute, you know, let's, let's maybe not go as far uh, as we could have gone. But in the next generation, that trade, that trade is being made actively every single day. I mean, look at TikTok's rise, right? The next generation doesn't care at all about privacy. If anything, they're pushing the privacy frontier even further out the curve. And we, we don't I, even know what the beginnings of, of those ramifications are. Yeah. I mean, the TikTok thing is completely absurd to me too, just like at a, at like a regulatory and, and national level, like the fact that the U the FTC and the U S government is going to like effectively block Facebook or Google from making any acquisition period. Um, but we have a Chinese company, you know, acquiring and owning the data of like, you know, a hundred million U.S. citizens um, and storing that data in China is like one of the most puzzling geopolitical uh, decisions, I think, of the century. Um, but, but that's a broader discussion as well. Um, I did. I, I wanted to throw this in because I think it's related to to what Nick said as well about about social media and, and kind of the downsides. I saw this Mike Tyson quote that I think you're, um, Nick, I think it was your friend, um, Chris, uh, Chris Powers posted mm -hmm. it originally. That was like uh, a Mike Tyson quote that just said, social media made y'all way too comfortable with disrespecting people and not getting punched in the face for it. <laughs> um, and it's obviously like, you know, f first off, Mike Tyson has his own set of issues and I'm not like endorsing the human being, but I do think it's actually a thoughtful point on social media and, and what it's done. And that like, there's no, you know, when you kind of post something, uh, there's upside and there's effectively no downside. If you're like pseudonymous or if you're hidden behind a screen, um, you can kind of say whatever you want because you know that you don't have the same, you know, ramifications that you might've had in the pre-social media era. And so that has changed a lot of human interactions and a lot of the ways that we interact, you know, on a daily basis with one another, um, for better or for worse. I think, um, if we zoom out, this is, this discussion has been phenomenal. 10, 10 years ago, I couldn't send money to Sahil Bloom. I couldn't go to a, a restaurant or bar that I'd never been to without taking a map with me. I couldn't run a business without five secretaries and boxes and boxes of paper. Most people still used cash when they went out and bought something. The world is drastically different. Nobody, most people didn't even have a cell phone to call and communicate with other people that way. 10 years from now, I don't think the iPhone will look that much different. I don't think my bed and my house will look that much different. I don't think my computer will look that much different. The way I run my business will look that much different. And the car I get in and drive wherever I go will not be that much different. It'll be different, of course. But, it, but I think that there's a law of diminishing returns here with technology. I think 
I'm really glad that there's a lot of very smart people working on these incredibly hard businesses. We know how hard they are. Most of them fail. Even the most competent sometimes can't win. That's, just, that's somewhat disappointing to me that so much talent is going to solve these such hard problems when there will be a law of diminishing returns of tech somewhere. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the world will get exponentially more efficient as it has the last 10 years. I don't see how, when I think logically about how our phones and our worlds will look, I don't see it being that much different. But I think I'll leave people with the, you know, look, they're really, really hard problems to solve. And I'm really glad that smart people are working on them. But there's also a lot of very simple problems to solve. Simple ones with proven models, with inefficient, you know, not that competent managers making very good money, changing the world by helping people do little, boring, sweaty, unsexy things at their homes, at their businesses, in their real world. If I were an entrepreneur with no money, no credit, 21 years old, you, you know, you have the choice. You have the choice to go try to solve these very, very difficult problems, or you just shut your computer and look out at your physical world and try to just fill in some gaps of supply, demand, and to do real world, real life arbitrage. And I think not enough tech folks look at the world that way. And I wish more brilliant minds would look at some of these simple problems and go make a lot of money and then work on changing the world with that money and experience and what they know and what they learned. But you guys make really good points. And I do think the world will change. I don't know how much it'll change. I hope I'm wrong because it'll be a very exciting time. Um, and you guys, honestly, you have so much more experience than me. I, I'm getting so much smarter listening to you because you're on the forefront of these board meetings at these co with these companies. You're seeing the technology. You're you're using crypto the right way. I'm probably not, right? So I'm excited to learn from both of you. I'm excited to be here and uh, just get better every day. And that was kind of the point of this tweet. And look, this, this tweet this tweet led to a 45-minute conversation with two very brilliant people who I respect a lot. So I'm, I'm thankful that I, that I wrote it. I think that last point, Nick, actually is, is really operative. And I, I want to just tease out kind of two things that you said, because I think both are actually very true. So one is on the on the technology piece. I mean, you're you're basically communicating. Sahil, you'll be familiar with this. Nick is basically communicating like the Peter Thiel view of the world, right? Which is technological progress is actually slowed down over the last thirty years. Uh, too much talent is focused on kind of the next consumer app as opposed to the hard harder things like frontier and space and electrical grids and so on and so forth, right? So I, I actually think I think Nick in kind of the tech community itself there's a camp that would actually fall yeah. very much so in line, right, with your perspective, which is progress has actually slowed down and kind of the, the resource allocation is a trivial thing. So that's that's kind of one part. But I think the second part of what you said, which I like the way you wrote the thread because I think it elicited conversation, but it's actually completely disconnected to the thread or this premise of does tech change the world, which I think is actually really important for everybody listening uh, and for you to kind of continue spreading this this word, is a lot of people in our generation feel like they're stuck, right? They have student debt, healthcare is crazy expensive, houses are crazy expensive, and they feel stuck in a job that they don't like. And there are lots of ways without being a rocket scientist from Harvard, where you can make amazing money and have full and complete agency over your whole life. And I think that's the sweaty startup, right? There's so many ways that with pretty basic technology, pretty basic existing things, if you get out in the world, you make observations. I think you had a tweet a while ago, which I think is spot on, which is like, you know, how do you pick uh, which space you want to get into or which kind of business you want to compete with? 
go see who's using, you know, pen and paper and fax. Yeah. So I think, right. And so I think your point is totally well taken, which is you can get unstuck and you can have a ton of agency in your life without, you know, inventing 3D printed rockets. Right. And I think you can do that and you can live an awesome life. And I think that's what the vast mass, when you think about what the vast majority of people in this country want, they want a good life, right? They want a happy, healthy family. They want to feel, you know, joy in what they're doing, pride in their local community. And, you know, it's awesome that we have the Elon Musk of the world. That doesn't mean everybody has to be an Elon Musk, right? So I, I think that part of your thread and kind of just the general message you spread is um, is really, really positively constructive for, for the online. Yeah. yeah, and people like you, Nick, or like Cody, um, you know, are kind of doing a, a service in a sense of like glamorizing the people that are doing, um, you know, doing some of these sweatier jobs and making a great life and career out of it because I think it, it alerts everybody to the ability to do that. And to Romine's point, I think there are a lot of people out there searching for what it is that they want to do and, and how they're going to, you know, pursue their life and take care of their families and support their loved ones, et cetera. And I think shining more light on those type of people that, you know, are achieving those things um, in a different way. That's not like go start some startup and dealing with the survivorship bias that comes with all of that is a great thing. Um, and I think it'll lead to a lot more success stories in those spaces. So um, I, I thought this was an awesome conversation and honestly, much more uh, balanced and nuanced than uh, than even I expected. So, Nick, thank you, Romine. This was awesome. Super glad um, you guys were both able to join. Sorry we weren't able to take anyone um, callers. It got so in depth for the next one. I promise we will. And if people do have follow-ups or things that, that we weren't able to chat about, feel free to DM me on Twitter. If you just say like call in live in the DM or something like that, I'll be sure to, uh, to try to check it. Um, this was awesome. Thank you guys so much. Appreciate it. And until next time, we will see you all soon. Cool. Thanks guys. Thanks. Al. Thanks Zach. Thanks for having me. Really, really